Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Lance Morrow. He is an American essayist whose op-ed articles appear regularly in the Wall Street Journal. He's the Henry Grunewald Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. For many years, he was an essayist for Time Magazine, winner of the National Magazine Award and author of eight books, including Evil and Investigation. He has a new book out entitled God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. Uh, Lance Morrow, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Well, uh, you uh, will just jump right in to the book. You say at the start, quote, money, broadly speaking, has been the logic of America. Uh, Lance, do you mean that in a, in a negative, a critical sense? No, no, not at all. Not at all. That's not the point of the book uh, at all. Uh, it is simply to say that from the beginning, money has been an essential common denominator, an essential language, the essential lure of the country, the essential reason why um, the search for the European search for the new world uh, began. Uh, money has been absolutely um, to the to the country, and so has the uh, the title is God and Mammon, and the partnership or the the very uneasy but nevertheless um, functional relationship between God and mammon in uh, American history and in the American way of doing things has been has been central and um, has been very productive uh, in, in so I, it is not it, it is not intended to be a a negative uh, reading of American money it's it's uh, obviously there there are many elements that are negative uh, that, that I examine in some detail, including a, a good deal on the slave trade and, uh, and, and the role of uh, race and slavery and so on in American history, uh, from, looked at from a money point of view. But it is, it is by no means uh, negative about money. I mean, you, you, you have a question, is, is money the, um, the root of all evil? Or is it the uh, root and the source of a great deal of good? Well, uh, you could argue the evil thing, but you could also say that money in America has been uh, um, part and part of the miraculous creation of the country. And uh, so it's a it's a complicated story, and it's a it's a binary story. It's a story of binaries. It's a story of opposites because 
just as God and mammon are, are, are binaries or opposites or and also partners. So is that that's that's roughly the, the spirit of the thing. It's uh, money. I, I find a very interesting subject and American money is especially interesting. I'm, I am completely unqualified to talk about money from a technical point of view. Uh, but but what interests me are what I call the emotions of money, the psychological and cultural aspects of, of American money as they play through uh, American history from from the earliest time. And uh, so that's what I'm up to. Yeah. One of those pairings or oppositions you mention as, quote, an estrangement between Calvinism and the Enlightenment. Uh, which are both part of the American, you know, the, 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 the American evolution, is money, well, was money somehow a, a way for those two things to, to be resolved or, or to coexist? Yes, I think so, because money, money of course, is, it was a very dynamic element in, in the, uh, in the de- it always is. It's, it's got a, a very uh, active uh, role to play in the, in the dynamics the Cotton Mather uh, in 1702 uh, came up with a metaphor. He said that um, a Christian goes to heaven by rowing his boat with two oars. One is the oar of his spiritual calling, and one is the oar of his material calling. And if he pu- if he pulls on only one or the other then the boat will go in circles. But if he pulls together on both oars, then he will arrive at the kingdom of heaven. And you find that that, that combination of virtue, uh, of, uh, of money and virtue, uh, run, is a thread that runs all through American history. What is uh, how to make money virtuous? Is money virtuous or is it corrupt? Well, uh, obviously it's often corrupt, but... But uh, how to make money virtuous is a, is a, is a question that um, uh, has interested and sometimes obsessed Americans from the very beginning. The, the American binaries of success and failure are a reflection down the road of the Calvinist binaries of salvation and damnation. And even though the teaching was that nothing you can do you are you are predestined you're preordained and you're uh from from all eternity your fate was sealed and so on nevertheless you must behave as if and you must uh strive to um work as hard as you can and be as as virtuous and indeed as successful as you can behaving as if and then this this will um, give you your best hope of this. This becomes a sort of it's a contradiction. And yet that that's the basis of the Protestant ethic, for example. And uh, the, the theme of, um, of American virtue, American virtue in foreign policy, American exceptionalism, American manifest destiny and so on is always has to do with making the power and the money and the abundance virtuous, making it good, somehow somehow making mammon presentable, respectable. I remember at the end of um, World War II, 
uh, Henry Luce, who, who of course was the founder of Time and Life and the Time Time Life Empire. Luce gave a speech in which uh, he he was a classic specimen of, of American conscience and so on, operating in a certain way. And he gave a speech in which he was rejoicing in a sort of triumphal way about the uh, victory in World War II, but he was fretting. I think this was a speech that he gave at the at a theological seminary, and he was fretting about. He said, "How are we going to make all of this power and all of this money that we have? How are we going to make it virtuous?" How are we going to turn it to good use, good purposes? And so that's that's a theme that that runs all through uh, American history. And you wouldn't find a a European politician speaking that way. Not to say that they don't care about virtue, but they wouldn't they wouldn't talk. They just wouldn't talk about this way. How do we make money virtuous? Exactly, because America is a different creature in the way that uh, America was a, a uh, it was sort of, <coughs> excuse me, ex nihilo in a way that, that the European countries were not. I mean, it's, it's often been observed that, of course, a country like France or Italy or Britain become, has a, a deeply embedded uh, history and tradition and identity that is quite different from the American phenomenon, which is almost an abstraction in the sense that uh, the uh, <coughs> the Europeans come to this very large and abundant continent and uh, and uh, sort of invent themselves and are very self-conscious about having no past. And the 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 theme of America not having a past was. Uh, obsessed a lot of people in the early 19th century and up up through the transcendentalists and they uh they worried about um, uh, hawthorne and uh, henry james and and uh, worried a great deal about where was the the culture where was the material and so on so in in terms of um virtue uh and money the you're quite right. A European wouldn't talk that way, but Americans talk that way because of the fluidity and the mobility and the newness and the rawness of the country for a long time, and a an intense self-consciousness, the, the a, a characteristic of America that is not uh, characteristic of of most other countries, is this intense self-consciousness and this need to uh, think well of ourselves. And if we don't think well of ourselves, then we condemn ourselves terribly. So that you get this phenomenon that we we see now and have seen actually since the Vietnam War and and the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Uh, America is either the best thing on earth or it is uh, evil, racist, oppressive, bad from the get-go. And so this the, again, you're looking at binary versions of the country. You're looking at a, a a skitzy kind of American idea of itself. And this self-consciousness that I think Americans uh, have accounts for things like Henry Luce saying, 
how are we going to make this power virtuous? How are we going to do good? It's doing well, doing well and doing good. It's not enough to do well. We are doing well because we have this great economy and all that. But how do we do good? And that this is a theme that uh, that runs runs through the through the country. In, in your first chapter, you you lay that out uh, running from the the Puritans and up through the the 19th century financiers uh, and up until the Depression. But then you jump into current events in chapter two. You jump right into the pandemic, the coronavirus. How does the coronavirus fit into your conception of, of American money? Well, my idea in writing the book was to have it to do it on two axes. It happened that I was I was undertaking the book early in the pandemic, and it just happened to be in this crazy year of 2020. And so I wanted to do it on two axes. One would be uh, a vertical axis, which is history, which is America going back deeply into American history from the beginning. And then the the second was is the horizontal axis, which is the present time. And I I keep in the book, I go back and forth uh, from the present of 2020 and the pandemic and the George Floyd riots and all of this demonstration and all of this stuff between that and the the history and, and uh, some of the life stories of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and uh, uh, many, many other American characters whom I examine in biographical sketches in the book. And it is, a, it, it is an effort to relate the, uh, the present to the past, to, to, to say it simply. And at the same time, there's, I, I have a good deal of components of memoir of, of my own experience and my parents' experience in the Depression. And so there are sort of four compass points in the book. One is the private and the other is the public. One is the past and the other is the present. So that's four corners of the of the book. And so what I'm trying to do is connect the private or personal to the public and universal and to connect the past with the present. And so it, that's the reason that I go back and forth um, I, I want to connect the past and present partly because uh, there is an alarming phenomenon of disconnection going on in America now from the American past. You have a, a feeling that partly because of an ignorance of the American past and partly because the present is so all-consuming and so blinding that uh, you you feel that there's a disconnection. Americans are disconnected from their own uh, experience, their own deeper experience. Especially the young. Uh, and well, it's very, very especially the young. I mean, this is this is a, a shocking thing to me. The um, the ignorance and the um, the fact that the American past is not understood or, or taught or or is taught in a very distorted way. And um, I, I find that extremely uh, troubling. And so I'm, I'm constantly trying in the book, trying to connect uh, the past with the present 
and to explain my understanding of of the uh, the deeper resonances of the country, and I and I choose the subject of money because money is a kind of lingua franca. It is a kind of common denominator. It is uh, a language. It is our standard of measurement. And that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. I mean, sometimes it can be a bad, invidious sort of thing. But but to have money as a, there is tremendous fluidity and there's tremendous creativity. And, and the money is really, uh, for all the talk about uh, corruption and evil and so on, money is a miraculous instrument. It's a it's a miraculous way of making possible everything. You know, making possible the 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 uh, transactions that advance the tremendous creativity, the immense creativity of the country, uh, which is often forgotten, and um, and so that's that's what the uh, what I'm what I'm trying to do accomplish with the book. Yeah, well, you know, you know, I was gonna in that pandemic chapter, you talk about Donald Trump. I'll, I'll I'll ask you about that, but first, let's go back to a previous president because a little later on, you you go you do go back into the past, including your own family. What did Franklin Delano Roosevelt mean to your father? People like your father. My father was a, a newspaper man before he became a man a. Uh, magazine editor, an editor of the old Saturday Evening Post in the years when the Saturday Evening Post was an important magazine. But in in uh, Roosevelt's uh, late in his second term and early in his third term, my father was a White House correspondent for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And uh, my father had a, uh, a, a real reverence for FDR in one way. And yet he also accurately, in my view, evaluated him as a, a tremendous ham bone and performer. And Roosevelt himself said that he was a he was an actor. He was a performer and that uh, a part of his leadership had to do with just sheer performance. But uh, uh, my father had a, uh, had a sort of a satirical admiration for, for Roosevelt. He he, he uh, uh, my father would t- would describe his press conferences when they all the my father and the rest of the reporters would crowd up around the um, the president's desk in the Oval Office, and Roosevelt would put on one of his performances with his with his ivory cigarette holder, you know, well, the boys here, and sort of sort of, uh, and and my father would tell would describe these sessions in the voice of W.C. Fields. And I said, well, so, 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 so. and it was, a, it was a very funny performance, but so it was, my, my father regarded all politicians as charlatans and he regarded Roosevelt in a way as a charlatan, but as a great charlatan and as a good charlatan. And uh, so uh, he had a, he had a complicated sort of, sort of admiration for him. Um, whether, 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 uh, Franklin Roosevelt did as well with the depression as he should have done is another question. I, there is a, there's a uh, there's a persuasive argument that the depression should have heard, uh, ended a lot earlier than it did, um, and, and that some of Roosevelt, many of Roosevelt's policies <clears throat> were counterproductive in that sense. But uh, you, you know, one thing you note, one one interesting you 
thing you noted was that uh, you're a, you're a depression baby. You were born during, uh, late, during the, late late depression. Yeah. Late depression. Yeah. Well, I was, but your siblings were quite a bit younger than you were, so uh, they 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 came of age during the '60s, and even though they were your siblings, you felt that they had a completely a generational difference, which led to a fundamental difference in their conception of America. How so? It was an absolutely fundamental and decisive difference. I <clears throat> was born in 1939, in the same month that <clears throat> that uh, Hitler went into Poland, in September of 1939. My earliest memories were of basic of, of the war, of, of World War II, and I felt the absence of my father and my uncles who were off fighting at Anzio and Normandy and the, the Battle of the Bulge and so on. And I felt a, a sense of their heroism. I felt a sense that furthermore, that the country itself was good, that America was a good country and that it was a beleaguered country in danger. And up until 1942, late 42, of course, it, it was very much touch and go. And we might have lost World War II, in other words. And so there, there came with that very early perception. And of course, I was just a tiny kid. But nevertheless, I absorbed the atmosphere of uh, and conception of the country as basically virtuous and, and as basically good and is basically great. My younger brothers and sisters, and we were a very numerous family, there were 10 of us all together counting step brothers and sisters and half brothers and sisters, but they came along much later, as you say, and they came of age in the Vietnam years, in the, in the years of, of uh, urban riots, the assassinations of of uh, John Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X and so on. And they had a very different conception of the United States, of America, and they had the opposite conception. Uh, World War II was the good war. World War, I mean, uh, Vietnam was the bad war, the very bad war, the wicked war. And uh, extrapolating from that, they came to the conclusion that America was a wicked country and all of the well-known phenomena of uh, American self-reproach about uh, racism and, and uh, all of that came to the fore for the first time and uh, or or at least in 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 this new iteration and uh has has matured into the culture wars that we still are in the very uh, most intense midst of right now so they had a they had a different country. Yeah, let me let me know. But you you saw some of the upheavals up close when you were working for Time, I believe. You you went to Detroit in 1967. What did you see there? Well, the in 67 that was my first cover story for Time magazine. It was when the the, the Detroit riots were going on. But I did not go to Detroit. I wrote that story in New York from uh, report the uh, the old time system of the correspondents would uh, send in their their reports and I wrote that story in New York. I was in Chicago in '68 uh, during that you know very violent uh, 
disrupted convention, the Democratic convention. And uh, I, I covered a lot of the, uh, you know, the Bobby, I was covering the Bobby Kennedy campaign in, in Indiana and elsewhere. Uh, I wasn't in Los Angeles when he was killed, but the uh, yes, I indeed, and I saw all of the. I was, I was, I wrote many, many cover stories for Time and essays for Time about the Vietnam War, about the civil rights movement, about the the, the cultural and countercultural phenomena of the '60s, about the rise of Nixon and Spiro Agnew, and the Middle American phenomenon, all of that. So um, as a journalist, but uh, but I was by then in my twenties, and and uh, I I had a uh, a different take on it from my younger brothers and sisters who who were seeing it, and th- this was their version of America, unfortunately, and and so what they saw was was uh, the wicked America. You you look at the protests. And, and even the violence today, you call that a bare opposition to, quote, the mentality of Trump's America. Well, what is the mentality of Trump's America? Well, I think that I think the mentality of Trump's America and of Trump himself is, well, first of all, I should say, I think it's misunderstood by a great many in the media. And, and I think it is caricatured and demonized in ways that it shouldn't be. But I think that it, it there are certain essentials of the country and of what it is, and indeed a, a certain sense of the country that it is or ought to be virtuous. And there was certain basic values uh, attached to the country. Uh, and they hark back to those. And I think as opposed to a an attitude of accusation and demonization that one finds on the left. And it is very, very clear to me that this all started in the time that we were just talking about, in in the 68, 69, 70, when half the Vietnam generation, you had this immense baby boom generation, and it split down the middle, and half of it went uh, was in favor of the war at least and the, you know the, the, many of them young men went to the war and uh and many of them on the other side did not go and dodge the draft in one kind or another in, in one way or another and in any case there was this cultural split and i think that it that it it is manifest now that what what we are seeing now in the year 2020 is the absolute last hurrah of the baby boom generation which is now in its 70s and this immense generation with all its complexities and all well all all of the tremendous energies some somewhat schizophrenic energies that's all coming to a head now you you have donald trump born in the fall i believe of 1946 you have uh, uh, joe biden is even older in 77 but but a lot of those again binary binary energies of the country are in conflict in a really spectacular way now, and you have the 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 super added binary now of race of black and white, and <clears throat> black and white and race goes back 
the Black Lives Matter and all of that stuff goes back and back and back to the, uh, 1619, as the as the New York Times says in that project of it. Uh, but it goes back to the slave trade. It goes back to the to the to the history and uh, of of the slave trade and slavery uh, all through the hundreds of years of uh, of the past. And so my book, in a way, is is an effort to gather some of these uh, some of these strands together and to to try to make sense of them and to allow the reader to think about the present somewhat in the in the light of of uh, things that happened a long time ago and characters who appeared in American history a long time ago including you know Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings I have a a long passages about their relationship and what it was all about and Thomas Jefferson died broke his he was bankrupt his uh they had to sell Monticello for uh, to pay the debts and uh, had to sell the slaves and it, it, his his relationship with Sally Hemings and the children that Sally Hemings bore by Thomas Jefferson makes it a very very interesting and complicated story that's a kind of commentary on American money and American um, race relations and 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 the the virtue or lack thereof. Let, let's uh, let, last question. Let's go back to a, a personal a biographical note. You served as a page in the U.S. Senate for a time. You had. Uh, encounters with uh, LBJ, Joseph McCarthy, uh, around Richard Nixon. Give us one, give us one, one little episode, memorable episode from from your time in the Senate in the 1950s. Well, I was sitting in the uh, Senate chamber on a Saturday morning, and for some reason they were meeting in Saturday session, and there were some um there was some important legislation coming out it was the summer uh of 50 1953 or possibly 54 it was i was there for two summers and there were some senators in the in the chamber it was before the start of business and in the back of the, on the senate side and there was a door that went into the democratic cloakroom and out of that door came a very young, skinny, somewhat disheveled, good-looking young man who was John Kennedy, the uh, the junior senator from Massachusetts, and he was very, very much the freshman senator, and he was on crutches, so it must have been '54, I guess, because he'd had his his dangerous back operations. And he came out of that door and he stood there for a moment, uh, just kind of looking around. And every eye, every eye in that chamber was absolutely fastened upon him. And all the most senior senators, senators, uh, Vice President Nixon, every eye in the place was focused on him with a real fascination. And it was the first time, and mine too, and it was the first time I I uh, got a look at. I saw him many times later, but it was the first time I got a look at the um, what would be later on called charisma, 
or the sort of star quality that that he had the, the remarkable uh, quality uh, and it, it surprised me because he, he really looked like a skinny kid he looked like a you know, it was almost as if his pants were a little too short and his suit didn't fit him quite right. But but he had a he had a quality that was very interesting. Um, there was there was another time when that's the different door, the center door in the back of the chamber opened up. And uh, we were it was early in, the, in the, it was about 1030 in the morning and there were a lot of senators on the floor. And it opened up, and this elderly man who looked like Jack Frost, he had uh, snowy white hair and bristling eyebrows, came into the chamber, and it was Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover started walking down the aisle, and, and this was his moment of return, his moment of triumph after all those years in the wilderness. And he could. it was now safe for Herbert Hoover to come back to Washington because Eisenhower had just been... Uh, elected president. And so the Republicans were back in power in the White House. And, uh, and it was, it was very, I got to shake his hand along with, uh, you know, everybody else in the, who was there that morning. But uh, it was very interesting to see the, that finally, I mean, talk about money. He, he had left in disgrace in March of 1933 when, when uh, Roosevelt came in and uh, the country was, uh, in such desperate um, condition with the depression, and uh, now he came back in, in a certain uh, said not exactly vindication, but uh, he, he was a very happy man. I remember that. Yeah. The book is God and Mammon: Chronicles of American Money. Lance Morrow, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be there. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.